Good morning. I returned home from the Congo this past Tuesday night. Uh, Congo is part of French-speaking Africa, and for three weeks I spoke no English and only French. If I inadvertently speak French this morning, and I'm unaware of it, trust God for the gift of the interpretation of tongues. (laughs) I would like to pray as we start for the enabling of his Holy Spirit. Our Father, it is a great mystery how you, the infinite creator, would dwell in our hearts and our lives by your spirit. Lord Jesus, you spoke about him and said that he would enable us whenever we had an opportunity to serve you, to witness for you. So, Spirit of God, take my mouth, my lips, my tongue, my eyes, my mind, my heart, my hands, enable me, direct me, help me, and grant enlightenment, illumination to those who listen this morning. Father, how we thank you the written revelation and pray that we would think and meditate on what you have said to us in the scriptures. We trust in you, Lord Jesus, for this time and pray sincerely that you, yourself, Lord, would be exalted and trusted and loved and worshipped. Amen. I used uh, an ATM in Kinshasa, in Congo, and it worked perfectly. I withdrew U.S. dollars. Interestingly enough, in that country and in that capital city of 18 million people, They use both U.S. dollars and Congolese francs. The French translation of ATM lends itself very well to be translated automated bills distributor. And I often tease the evangelical Christian students in that part of the world that they often twist the meaning in French of an ATM and how they view God as an automated blessings distributor. Now, it is true, is it not, that ATMs exist to serve men? You put in your debit card, you enter your password, you tell the machine what you want, and assuming there are available adequate funds, The ATM serves you according to your will. Is that not right? If you do your part, the ATM will do its part. The underlying premise of all religion is similar. And I'm using the word religion in quotation marks If you do what is required of you morally and religiously, God will bless you both in this life and in the life to come. This view of salvation, however, is the antithesis of the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace. And my message this morning, it is is entitled, God is not your ATM and is essentially a message on the gospel of Jesus 
and the dangers of works righteousness. Our jumping off verse and passage is in the book of Romans, chapter 11. If you'll turn there, I will be reading and using a New American Standard version. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33, a well-known passage. Romans 11, 33 to 36, which says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I would like to underline verse 35. What does it say? Who, it's a question, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? This doxology comes at the end of chapters 9, 10, and 11 where Paul is talking about the dispensation of Israel and the dispensation of the church in the church age. We will not talk about what he has written in those three chapters, but he comes to the end of the three chapters, Israel's place in the church age, and he bursts into praise. This tremendous passage, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Tremendous words. Then he asks this question, among others. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Verse 35. Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? He's actually quoting in verse 35. is a quote from the book of Job. He's quoting Job 41.11. Job 41.11 says the same thing in the New American. Yahweh says, who has given to me that I should repay him? I kind of like the way the New International Version reads on that verse. It said, God says, who has a claim against me that I should pay? Those two verses, 11.35, Job 41.11, one New Testament, one Old Testament, I would like us to look at the verse that follows. If we go back to Romans 11, what does verse 36 say? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be the glory forever. Amen. And if you look, if you want to look at Job 41.11, Job 41.11 where in the NIV it says, who has a claim against me that I should pay? And then the rest of the verse says, everything under heaven belongs to me. And you consider the two passages, and they speak of the greatness and the sovereignty and the glory and the sufficiency of God. The writer's thoughts are Godward and not manward. God does not exist to serve man according to man's will like some divine ATM. That phrase in 41.11, for everything, God says, everything belongs to me. When I read that, I immediately think of the verse of the passage where it says, the cattle on a thousand hills. Where is that? Bible trivia. The cattle on a thousand hills. Where is it in the scriptures? Okay, you have heard of this first, please. <laughs> Let's turn to Psalm 50. And we're going to start reading 
In verse 7, which is a few verses prior, because right at the end of this chapter is a phrase that's very important to the message this morning. I'll start reading in Psalm 50, verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. Verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and the fullness thereof, or the world is mine and all it contains. And I'm going to stop there for a minute. Tremendous words. And I pray that we discover the beauty and the power of what God has given us in the scriptures. It's tremendous. Now I want you to jump down to verse 21. Towards the end of the chapter, in verse 21... We read in Psalm 50, These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. And there's the phrase. God is saying to his people, You thought I was just like you. Our great error is thinking that God deals with men like we deal with men. That God treats men like we treat men. Our error is thinking that God is like us. In human relations, there's a lot of tit for tat, is there not? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You do something good for me, I'll do something good for you. You help me out, I'll help you out. That thinking penetrates kind of how we view God and his dealings with men. And uh, sometimes it's quite erroneous. An elder of one of our local churches said one time, how do you expect your cattle to do well if you're not in church every time the doors are open. I say, an elder in one of our local churches said, how do you expect your cattle to do well if you're not in church every time the doors are open? What was he implying? What did he mean by that? In our church in Niamey, Niger, where we served, small church, 15 students, four families, five missionaries, and two pastors, or three, I was interacting with the university students, and I asked them one time, I said, does your worship depend on favorable circumstances? One of the students said, well, if nothing is going right for me, what reason would I have to worship? Is his reasoning legitimate? If nothing is going right for me, why or for what reason would I worship him? I've told you before, the 2010 presidential election in the Ivory Coast was between an evangelical Christian and a Muslim. What did all the Christians, Ivory Coast is more or less a Christian nation, maybe 25% Muslim. What did all the Christians do? They campaigned ardently. They organized fasting and prayer vigils. They had 72-hour fasts like Esther, no food, no drink, praying that... The evangelical would win. He lost. 
He lost. Six months later, I was with our national staff, Campus Crusade for Christ, national staff in Ivory Coast, and they told me that thousands of Christians had quit going to church altogether. And I said, why? God let us down. We did everything in our power. We did our part. And he didn't do his. The expectation of religion is that if you do what is required of you, God will bless you both in this life and in the life to come. The accompanying conviction is that everything good or bad in life is earned or deserved. This was obviously the mindset at the time of Jesus. Do you remember when the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned that this man should be born blind? What's behind their question? Things like this don't just happen. And what does Jesus say? How does he respond to them? He said it wasn't a question of sin. And what he's really saying is that you don't understand how God works in the lives of men. You remember his two examples in Luke chapter 13? I think you will. Several Galileans were killed by Herod. Their blood was mixed with the sacrifices. And Jesus says, do you suppose these were greater sinners because they suffered this fate? What would the disciples have said in answer? Jesus asked him, were they greater sinners because they were killed and their blood mingled with the sacrifices? What would the disciples have said? Well, for sure, obviously. Jesus said, no, wrong answer. He follows that up, mentioning the 18 men who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. And Jesus asked this, were they worse culprits than the men of Jerusalem? What would the audience have said? Well, obviously. And Jesus said, no, wrong answer. I think moral and religious people believe consciously or subconsciously that God will recompense them and that he should. The gospel of Jesus. The gospel of the grace of God is counterintuitive. It is altogether different from religion. Whereas religion says God accepts us because of our efforts, the gospel says that God accepts us because of what Jesus has done. Jesus taught that man could do nothing to merit the favor of God and that restoration into God's family is a gift of a God who loves and forgives unconditionally. The gospel says that God imparts Jesus' righteousness to us apart from our works and merit and affirms that the believer is free from divine wrath forever. Religion gives no assurance of life after death. It cannot because it depends at least in part on moral and religious performance. But the gospel of Jesus gives a sure and fabulous hope that there are many rooms in his father's house. And in those rooms, what does Revelation 21 say? There'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, and no more death. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus. I'm not here to talk about that this morning. I think we think that the gospel is just for non-Christians. It is and it isn't. It's also for us. Think of what happened in Galatians chapter 2. There's a confrontation between Simon Peter, who's an apostle, 
and the Apostle Paul. Remember that confrontation? And the verse says that Peter, because of what he was doing, was no longer walking in line with the truth of the gospel. That's what it says of Simon Peter, the eminent apostle. This is post-Pentecost. He is no longer walking in line with the truth of the gospel. If that's a possibility for the apostle Peter, it's also a possibility for you and me. And I think you and I, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel, of the grace of God in Jesus for several reasons. I won't get around to finishing all my reasons, but we'll get started. Why do we need to remind ourselves of the gospel on a regular basis? First, because of the danger of lapsing into the belief that my spiritual performance keeps me in the position of saved, of justified, of belonging to God. I've had the opportunity to minister for over 30 years in several French-speaking sub-Saharan African countries. There are a lot of strong Bible-believing missions and churches in that part of the world. However, when you interact personally, especially with university students in those churches, like I have the privilege to do, you ask them, how is one saved? They will give you the right answer. By the grace of God through faith in Jesus. That's the right answer they give. They really don't believe it. And it's very easy to show that. I ask them, that's right, that's true. You ever sin? Yeah, all the time. What happens if the Lord returns right when you're sinning? Ah, yeah, well, that gets complicated. What if Jesus returns to consummate history before you've had a chance to confess and repent? Right when you're sinning, he returns. What happens? Well, you missed it. Everything you've done in church up to this point goes for naught. You see the, the dichotomy there? They're saying, giving the right answer, but in the heart... The conviction is somehow, some way, even a little bit, man has to keep his position of saved. If man contributes even a tiny little bit to being saved, saved, or staying saved, it is works righteousness. Because salvation, it's a gift, and my hanging in there. That's not true. Our sanctification, which is very important, does not keep our justification. Once we have, by the grace of God, come to faith in Jesus, our sins have been forgiven, our debt has been paid, we have been imputed to us the righteousness of Jesus, we have passed out of death into life, and now we belong to him forever. Once we are in that position, it is invariable, it is eternal. I cannot improve that Position, I cannot diminish it. That's the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of depravity, the doctrine of grace. It is the message of the gospel. We need to remind ourselves of this gospel every day to not lapse into the thinking that somehow my faithfulness or my offerings to missions or my goodness keeps me in this position. 
We need to remind ourselves of the gospel because of the danger of lapsing into belief that my spirituality will obligate God to bless me. I don't know if that's what the church elder was affirming or not when he said, how do you expect your cattle to do well if you're not in church every time the doors are open? Was he actually implying that if you are faithful every time the church doors are open, that God will have to bless your cattle feeding enterprise? Was he really saying that? I don't know. A dear, dear young friend of mine is happily married. He is so happily married, he can't, it's, um, I mean, he's really happy. His wife, whom he loves, was not his first love. There was a previous girlfriend years ago. This young man has a very, has always had a very tender heart, a very sincere walk with God. For years, he had been praying about the question of spouse and no response. He wanted to do the will of God. And then finally, this first girlfriend came along. And he's going, the Lord has answered my prayer. He came through. He has blessed me. Thank you for your will, O Lord. They're in this relationship. It's going on for several months and then she just drops him hard. He got dear Johned in a very hard way. And what surprised me was how disillusioned he became with God himself. Where was God? What happened? I had sought his will, I was willing to do his will, I had prayed. Others had prayed everything, and then it didn't work out. When I tell you, he struggled for months to believe in the goodness of God. Now, hindsight is always 2020, and he rejoices today that God said no to the first girlfriend. He is so utterly happy. Listen, if you feel like God has let you down, does this not reveal that in your heart of hearts you believe he owed you something? If you feel like God has let you down in some way, shape, or form, does this not reveal that at some point you feel like he owed Something to you, and my question is, what does he owe you? Does he owe me anything? Who? That's our question. Who has first given to him? Who? That it should be paid back to him again. There's a, another reason that we should remind ourselves of the gospel, of the grace of God in our lives in Jesus. There's a third reason. Because of the danger of arrogance and intolerance and feelings of superiority to those who do not share my beliefs, values, and opinions. If I forget the gospel of the grace of God, if I forget that my identity, my sense of well-being is in Jesus, the danger is, is that when I encounter others who believe and think differently from me, who have different positions and traditions from me, the danger will be to be 
well, not nice to them. Let me say it this way. If your sense of worth, your well-being, your identity, if your justification is linked to someone or something other than Jesus, and someone comes along who questions the veracity and legitimacy of your relationships, your beliefs, values, and positions, you will immediately become defensive and critical of the person and dislike both him and what he believes. That will be your natural reaction, your default reaction. And I want to give a couple examples <clears throat> about this. And please don't misunderstand. I'm not making a statement about the different issues that I'm using in these examples whatsoever. I'm simply saying that if our sense of well-being, if our identity, our justification is anchored in someone or something other than Jesus himself, the grace of God it'll create social tension and conflict both within the church and outside the church. All right. So, let's suppose that your identity, your sense of well-being, your security, your justification is tied to the homeschooling of your children. You love homeschooling your kids. And by the way, we homeschooled our kids for some of our years in Africa. Homeschooling your kids gives you esteem, gives you a sense of worth. In a way, it feels like it justifies your existence. If your security and identity, your sense of well-being are anchored in that, and someone comes along and questions or criticize the legitimacy of homeschooling, your reaction will not be a good one. You'll read the article in the Harvard Law Review of 60 or 70-some pages where they are pleading for a law to prohibit homeschooling in the United States of America, or someone will objectively question the merits of what you're doing, and wonder if that's what's best for your kids. If your identity, your justification is there, your reactions will not be good ones. The hostility, anger, pride, Self-righteousness are exactly what we see in the Pharisees in Jesus' time. Because their beliefs, behavior, values, and traditions were being challenged by Jesus, the Word incarnate, and they couldn't handle the challenge. If you think about the man born blind, to whom I referred earlier, you know that story. What did they end up doing? They call him in a first time. They call him in a second time. And he says, you want to become his disciples too? Remember that story? And they end up, you were born entirely in your sins. And you're teaching us. And they cast him out of the temple. The only solution for them was to get rid of people who didn't think like they did. And because Jesus was so unique, the only solution there was to kill him, which is what they did. Pharisees despised and attacked everybody who didn't share their exact beliefs practices, and traditions. We need you and I to remind ourselves of the gospel of grace to remind us that we need to anchor our own justification. Listen, everybody has to justify their existence some way. The only secure way is to anchor it in Jesus. We need to do that because works righteousness not only damages the soul, it creates social strife in the church 
and outside of the church. I quoted that verse in Galatians 2.14, where it is said of the Apostle Peter that he was no longer walking in a straightforward manner about the gospel, no more walking according to the truth of the gospel. And I'll say this. How we treat others who do not share our beliefs, values, and traditions, both politically and ecclesiastically, will reveal to what extent we're living in line with the truth of the gospel. It is very, very easy to get angry at, to feel better than, to be super critical of others who don't believe and think the way we believe and think. There are always potentially divisive issues in the local church. True or false? There are always potentially divisive issues in the local church. True or false? It's just a reality. Can I just mention some? Is practicing birth control biblical? Can a Christian vote for a Democrat? Is capital punishment a biblical standard? Is it legitimate to have a nursery during Sunday school and church? Is homeschooling more spiritual than using private or public schools? Is consuming alcoholic beverages okay? Does special music have a place in the worship service? Is congregational rule biblical? Are dress codes biblical? Is sprinkling a legitimate mode of baptism? And there are many other issues. If I had time, we'd go to Romans 14 and 15, where Paul deals with a divisive issue. We would also go to 1 Corinthians 8, where he's dealing with issues within the early church that were tearing it apart or had the potential to do so. And you know, in that Romans chapter 14 passage, it was the Jewish believers who were the weaker brothers because they were kind of clinging to uh, some of the Jewish ceremonial laws about eating, not eating certain kinds of food. And maybe they hadn't fully grasped the implications of the gospel because somehow that contributed to right standing with God. The stronger brother knows that whether I eat or don't eat has nothing to do with my justification. I'm free to eat, I'm free to not eat. But for the weaker brother, somehow his relationship with God was affected and so Paul writes, and most of what's written in Romans 14 and 15 is addressed to the stronger brother. He says, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who doesn't eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. He says, if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Verse 20, Romans 14. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. What a verse. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. We ought to bear, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves, for even Christ did not please himself. And Paul will write about the primacy of love. For example, you'll say to me, 
I am free to enjoy good wine and premium beer. I know that consuming or not consuming has nothing to do with being justified by faith in Christ. I'm free to not consume. I am free to do it. They've understood the gospel in the sense that other things don't justify me before God. But maybe somebody else in the community really affects them negatively in terms of their relationship with God. They're having a hard time. They can't figure out how can one be rightly related to God and they're trying to figure it out. And maybe that's the weaker brother. He hasn't fully grasped the truth of the gospel. In this case, if the stronger brother says, look, that's not my problem. If he's got such strong sensibilities to this issue, I'm not going to ruin my life by catering to what he thinks. Yes, you are, if you want to be like Jesus. Yes, you are, if you want to be like Jesus. You'll say to me another example, I'm free to dress any way I want for church. I know that if I dress this way or whether I dress this way, it has nothing to do with my justification, my right standing before God. I'm free. What if it really bothers somebody else in the local body and they're trying to figure out how can, how's this right relationship with God, how to, and it's messing them up. And there again, the person says, that's not my problem. I'm not going to cater to what other people think. You learned that somebody, last example, you learned that somebody in church voted for Joe Biden in the last presidential election and has views different from yours on immigration, welfare, capital punishment. If you feel disdain, in your heart, if you are angry in your heart, if you have feelings of superior, can you believe that idiot? How on? So you come to church. Because you would never have done that. You pray, Lord, I thank Thee that I am not like this fellow over here who voted for President Biden. I thank Thee. Only the gospel of Jesus produces humility in the heart. We talked about humility in Sunday school. You're in the old Buznitz's class on numbers. We talked a lot about humility. Only the gospel of Jesus produces humility in us. Because we're becoming like them. What does it say of Jesus? Who humbled himself, who emptied himself to the point of death. He laid aside all of his rights and privileges because he loved people and he cared about people. I'd like to mention one last reason why it's important for us to remind ourselves of the gospel of the grace of God toward us in Jesus. And it's because of the danger of self. I was in Kinshasa with 25 
crew student leaders and 25 young crew full-time staff, Campus Crusade for Christ. I got so tired of the selfies. Everybody has a smartphone over and over and over. I'm not a patient person anyway, by nature. Don't ask my wife about this. Our culture is increasingly narcissistic. Everybody knows that. A blind man can see that. And the gospel of Jesus, following Jesus, frees us from self. What's the first thing he said? If anyone wants to come after me, what did he say? If anyone wants to come after me, what? Let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. Luke 6.40. Every disciple, when he is fully trained, will be like his master. And Jesus laid aside everything that were his rights and prerogatives and privileges because he loved people and gave his life for people. I think this morning what I really want to do what I'm trying to do, I want you to think about Jesus. I want you to think about his life, how he lived, how he interacted with people. Are you familiar with this verse from the book of Corinthians? What do you have that you have not received? You know that verse? What do you have that you have not received? Does it not say elsewhere, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift, does it not say that, is from above? Yes, it's true. Who is first who? Who here? Who has first given to him that he should repay? From him, through him, to him, all things. To him be the glory forever. The one whom we worship this morning, and thank you for the music. Thank you for the worship atmosphere. It's a blessing. The one whom we worship and to whom we pray, he is not our ATM. He is the eternal, sovereign, holy creator. And he said to Moses, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The gospel of Jesus, his son. The gospel of the grace of God engenders humility produces social harmony and creates oneness in the church. I'm not necessarily speaking of uniformity, but unity in the church. And the miracle of the early church was that Jewish believers and Gentile pagan believers could get along and serve and worship and love Jesus together. That was a miracle. Jesus is the glue. And if we will anchor our sense of well-being, our identity, our justification in him, that's an inside-out variety. And it frees me up to dialogue with my neighbor who is very liberal or with my fellow church member who believes differently from me on the mode of baptism, on birth control, on the role of special music. We may have very differing views. And as you know, in the church, people have very strong convictions. If your identity is rooted in the conviction, how are you going to get along with a person who doesn't believe like you do? 
We need to come back to Jesus so that we can talk honestly, dialogue, and discuss these things. The Lord will help us reach consensus. Anyway, my heart is free. And I really would ask this morning, is your heart free? The tremendous passage. I spoke on that last fall at the missions conference. The tremendous passage in Ephesians 4, 31, 32. Let all bitterness and all wrath, is your heart free from all those destructive emotions? Your heart free? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving just like he forgave us in Christ. I'd like to pray as we close. You'll join me, Spirit. Our Father in heaven, I was not seeking you when you intervened in my life as a student at Fort Hayes State University. And I know that my coming to faith in Jesus and becoming a genuine Christian was by your doing. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And you, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which you loved me, you made me alive. And that's true for every one of my brothers and sisters here. So thank you. Thank you. And for the freedom that you give, Lord Jesus, if the Son sets you free, how free you are. And I pray that you'll help us, Lord, to anchor our sense of well-being, to anchor our significance, to anchor our justification in you so we're free to love and even get along well with those with whom we disagree strongly about certain traditions and beliefs and values. Not affirming the veracity of certain things, no. But being able to love. Lord Jesus, you are our example and model. You are our Savior, and we need you to be our teacher and our Lord. So I pray that we would come to you, accept your invitation, come to me, and you'll give us rest. I am gentle and humble in heart. And for the promise of heaven, for this fabulous hope of life after death, thank you, Lord Jesus. Please, Lord, remain the focus of our Christian faith and help us to see the beauty and power and greatness of the words you've left us in the Holy Scriptures. Amen.